This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. Good morning. It's December 11th. And here on Race Capital, Kat and I are excited to invite some Richmond voices to talk about the topic of the year of the next 30 years which is Navy Hill RVA. Jason Roop of Style Weekly wrote, in June 2017, Richmond Business first reported that Tom Farrell and his powerful coalition of local business leaders were pitching their development project. Then Stoney took up the cause, announcing that he would open a request for proposals to develop the North Abroad area. Navy Hill District was the only developer to respond. There's been no widespread public clamoring for a new arena. An underlying theme of the recent mayoral campaign was to shy away from shiny projects in favor of buckling down, fixing schools, and improving the core services of this city. Now we remember Mayor Stoney coming in and saying these exact things of focusing on schools and fixing the city. And here today, three years later, after his campaign, we are discussing the big shiny project named Navy Hill RVA. Today on the show, we have Alan Charles Chipman, Dr. Ben Teresa, and Dr. Kristen Reed. Alan, Alan Charles, what do you do, man? What do you do up around the city? <laughs> I do up around the city. Uh, so I work for a peace and trust building organization. I do work um, uh, unveiling and helping communities to understand the legacy and the history of racism and inequity uh, and how it uh, affects current um, communities and the current reality of Richmond. Uh, that work looks different every day because racism has impacted our city uh, differently. Right. And you're a friend of the show, so make sure that you tune back to our previous episodes to catch Alan Charles there. Up next, Dr. Ben Teresa. Yes, I'm an assistant professor in urban and regional studies and planning at Virginia Commonwealth University. And I'm also the co-director and co-founder with uh, Dr. Kate Howell of the RVA Eviction Lab. Beautiful. Up next, Dr. Reed. Um, I'm also a teacher at VCU, and I'm one of the co-founders and an organizer with a project called Richmond for All. There you go. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, we want to use the entire episode to really just break down some of the questions and narratives of this Navy Hill RVA. And we are on race capital, which means that we interrogate the racial narratives here in the former capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. So as we go through this conversation, let's not forget that we live in a chocolate city, a minority majority city of Richmond VA. Alan Charles, why don't we start with you? Sure. You've you've had you've been showing up in many spaces doing public comments, probably a lot of private meetings, showing up, writing statements, videos, and something that's been really great that we've heard from your own podcast, right? A difference in thought was when you broke down the players behind this project. So before we go too far into the project, why don't you just tell us who are the people that brought this to life and that are really saying, hey, this is what's best for Richmond? Sure, absolutely. And a lot of the work that I do is helping people understand when you talk about making a deal. One is, can you get to the table and remain uncompromised? 
uh, what's the deal on the table, and then of course, who are the people around the table. And so, uh, over in the Goldman, Paul Goldman, he uh, issued a FOIA um, and wanted to know kind of who was around the table. Uh, and when I first saw that document, uh, I saw there was mostly just a bunch of names, and then I just thought, you know, I also study civil rights history and case law and things like that as well. And so I, my first concern was, are the people around the table that have had history with racial discrimination or some type of um, fiscal irresponsibility? Uh, and so I really just started with going with the names. And so when you look at Inch Foundation, you have, uh, so you have Tom Farrell, who's the CEO of Dominion Energy. They've had a history, uh, for example, especially when you think about what's going on in Union Hill and trying to bring, right. uh, run the um, Atlantic Coast Pipeline there and the compressor station. Make sure you all tune in to the Union Hill episode with Race Capital. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, one of the, the things that really raised alarm about that for me is that on their, um, uh, so the Federal Energy Regulation Commission, also known as FERC, um, there was a previous project in Charlottesville, I believe, that was shut down because of its, uh, uh, it was adjacent to a black cemetery, African-American cemetery. Mm. And with one being on that FERC report, it actually got shut down. So for Union Hill, they actually didn't even put, for their uh, application for the ACP, they didn't even put Union Hill on there. Wow. Uh, so wait, they just decided not to even mention Union Hill's resist or existence because they didn't want to say, hey, well, you can't be there because that's... right. Yeah, so we have manipulation of documents okay. already. Not a great start. Right. It's well documented. I think just last year they overcharged Everyday Richmond's. There's around like th th Virginians, uh, some up, up to two hundred million, right? Two hundred million dollars, yeah. right? So right. again, not a good start. Right. Uh, <laughs> when you look at a and and we also know um, by Jeff Thomas, he put an IRS complaint that really Absolutely. highlighted the involvement with Tom Farrell and Dominion Energy with this uh, project with Navy Hill RVA. So yes, right. Major, can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Navy Hill RVA has been created as a nonprofit. NH District Corp. Yeah. Yeah, NH District Corp. And Jeff Thomas said, hey, y'all look like you're doing a lot of things that nonprofit C3 shouldn't be doing. And so he put in an IRS complaint basically talking about their lobbying. They're doing a lot of interesting behind the door. Someone else want to talk about the IRS complaint? You can yeah. tag me in if you want. Go. Yeah, go, okay. Alan. So uh, I think this 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 falls in well because actually um, as an addendum to his complaint, I actually sent some of the case history of some of the people on NH District Corp as well. Uh, the problem is that 501c3s, uh, the, per the IRS, it says a substantial portion of your activity cannot be lobbying. Mm -hmm. So Jeff Thomas, uh, if you, and for the everyday listeners, uh, if you want to think about it, if I took all the activities that your organization did and put in a basket and then sorted it out, will a greater percentage be lobbying or, or something else, right? right? So as Jeff Thomas was looking through the type of activities they had at city council meetings, other public body meetings that were in the bodies of lobbying, his case is that their substantial portion is actually more so lobbying than actually public benefit they provide. Mm. They responded and said, well, our public benefit is alleviating some of the priorities of the city. But the problem is uh, when you think of such as like a low income housing crisis. And now uh, last Wednesday uh, night, they talked about that this isn't actually a low income housing or public housing project. Mm. Then what public needs of the city are you actually alleviating? Because that's what you're basing your case of being a 501c3 on. Wow. Okay. So major player. Yes. And when you talk about last Wednesday night, you're talking about the oh, Navy right. Hill Commission the, the meeting, independent right? commission meeting that happened Wednesday, um, the fourth. December fourth. December fourth. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, Alan was introducing some of the major players, and he started with Tom Farrell. And I think there is, in some ways, because this is race capital, there's no better illustration of the 21st century mindset of the um, plantation class than the way Dominion Energy sort of inserts itself, both on the state level and also at the city level. This entire project has been oriented around players who really have a tremendous sense of entitlement to the land, the economic health, and the um, public process, what should be public process of our city and of our commonwealth. And so both Union Hill and Richmond Hill have identified some points of solidarity precisely because we are resisting the idea that the people with the most money and the most power and the most structured ownership mm -hmm. should actually just run everything that right. we live with the consequences of. Right. Wow. Okay. What other players are there, Alan? Right. So uh, some of the other players, and one of the one of the main ones that concerned me was C.T. Hill. Mm. C.T. Hill was over uh, the mortgage and loan uh, Mid-Atlantic Division of SunTrust. Uh, and the uh, Obama's Department of Justice actually sued SunTrust for applying a racially discriminatory fee uh, where the, the situation was if a black person and a white person with equal credit scores applied for a mortgage, SunTrust actually would apply a, a fee to black uh, people that they would not of white owners. Uh, the Department of Justice, assistant, the Assistant Attorney General at the time, Thomas Perez, said that they created a system that profited off of that. And though they would smile and shake the hands of black and Latinx uh, people while they would overcharge them, they said that they carried out what he called discrimination with a smile. So you're saying that same SunTrust is run by C.T. Hill. Here. That was when C.T. Hill was the head of that. And okay. part of their agreement was people who had these certain types of counts would have to either be removed or have some type of disciplinary action taken against them. Okay. C.T. Hill resigned in the middle of this investigation and maybe two months before it became public. So he was able to scoot it's around. It's concerning. There. And he's part of the Navy Hill. He's district the president Corp. of the NH District Corporation. How else is he showing up now if he's not in SunTrust? What else is he up to? So he also sits on the board of the Richmond Reform and Arts Academy, RPAC. I think it might be RPAA, might have changed it to Alliance, but those are the same. That's the same corporation that did the whole, uh, what was it, the Altria Theater and the Landmark or the Carpenter Theater. And uh, they had also a nonprofit set up and a for-profit set up. And they came to city council and said, oh, can you pay our $1.7 million tax bill because we're so broke and we don't have the money. And then when they, so a city council paid it. Parker Agilesto did not want them to do that. Uh, but then when they audit the for-profit wing of that, um, they actually had $15 million in surplus that year. So C.T. Hill, who's now the president of this nonprofit, Navy Hill Corp. Mm -hmm. And you missed Chelsea's air quotes. <laughs> you missed <laughs> I felt them. <laughs> or the listeners can't right. see them. <laughs> he is also on the board of the same folks that did the project that had us paying out more money mm -hmm. to the center stage. Mm-hmm. And then come to find out later, they didn't need that money. They didn't need that money. Right. And Tom Farrell was the head of that as well so at see, the time. Right. So, oh, wow. So, so you see this also. trifecta. So okay, uh, Marty Barrington is also with Altria. So the, the, the deal was done for Alt by Altria Theater with Marty Barrington. Uh, the money was taken from the RMA and what Mayor Jones called budgetary magic after Carlos Brown became the head of it, who is now the legal defense of Dominion. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so that was done. And so we have uh, Tom Farrell as hard of, head of RPAC at the time, 
uh, Marty Barrington is benefiting as Altria Theater. And guess who the loan came from? SunTrust. SunTrust. So now we have CTL as the head of RPAC. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, and just studying this, I was saying, you know, it seems that this this option could be set up again, but they just need a new nonprofit. So bringing it back to the Je to the Jeff Thomas complaint, in that uh, in that re in that same uh, response, and they responded also to I believe either the independent convention or the council around their 501c3 status, and they said that this is the type of setup that we ha that happens in uh, uh, Richmond, and we're, it's really how the theaters are set up. And they even listed that this would be a similar setup to RPAC. But the problem with RPAC during that time is that. Uh, the for-profit wing could not have been FOIA'd, so there was no way for city council to find out, oh, you guys have a 15, uh, whatever, million dollar surplus, you don't need this money. Right. And Tom Farrell said that they wouldn't be open to opening their books. So they literally said that they're setting up this same thing, and you have the same players because Marty Barrington is also on the NH Foundation. Right, and this time they were smart enough to get a nonprofit, so no one can FOIA that. Uh, Nonprofits can be FOIA'd, but it's the for-profit wing of that with such as Capital City Partners, Capital City Developers, and then you get into Susan Eastridge and Michael Hallmark, who are other players as well. Wow, wow. Okay, we might have to come back to them too. Yeah, it's, because it's heavy. It's, it's deep, heavy. And you also mentioned Dwight Jones in there, My Mayor Jones, who yes. uh, was a player back then. And I remember when this Navy Hill RVA Coliseum project was proposed in December 2018, and they had a big press conference. It seemed like the same people that stood with Dwight Jones for a lot of his proposals we're also standing right there next to Mayor LeVar Stoney. So yeah. it's the same people that were in the former administration that are now here. Um, and one person that I know very specifically that I see and, and really try and talk to when she allows me to is Grace Washington with the workforce mm -hmm. and everything that she's been doing very closely with the community wealth building that as a former social worker, I just couldn't get down with. Mm. And now to see her with this this huge project and we're talking about workforce and jobs, it scares the hell out of me, to be really honest. I wanna move over to Kristen, Dr. Reed. If you could just give us a little bit of information about how educators were so motivated to come together and use their voice against this project. So um, we also got involved in this project in, in 2018, in December. Um, I think in about a week, it's going to be a year that we've been working on this. Um, at that time, we were gearing up for an, a statewide educator walkout. On January, I think it was 28th of 2019, we saw about 4,000 teachers converge on the state capitol building demanding more funding for schools. Mm -hmm. So a month before that happened, the mayor called a press conference at George Mason Elementary, which is a block away from my home. It's a school that has lead in the paint, mold in the walls, um, a terrible um, mouse and rat infestation, where both teachers and students are, are working and learning in really unsafe conditions. Um, he met at George Mason with the superintendent and the president of, or the chair of the school board, Don Page, and announced that this deal would produce $600 million for schools. So this really concerned us for two reasons. Um, actually, several reasons. <laughs> First and foremost, this isn't going to produce $600 million for schools. Any money it does produce for schools is promised but non-binding, and it's going to be spread out over 30 years. So this is really crumbs that they're offering our schools. 
But they were offering it at a time when the mayor knew that he could get a headline that said $600 million for schools that would really drastically de-emphasize the teacher walkout that was coming. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have a headline that says millions for schools, hundreds of millions for schools, people, people believe that that money already has been spent. Mm-hmm. And they get really frustrated when you start to ask for more money. So this was a really demobilizing um, and in, in, in my sense, really unfair thing to do the teachers who had been working really hard to try to fund our schools for our kids. So you mentioned that it will not produce $600 million in schools. How can you say that so confidently? So one of the things that we know is if you look at TIF districts across the country, they actually got funding for schools. They both direct tax revenue and other revenue out of general funds and towards these big um, development projects, towards payback of of bonds. But they also can affect what we call the the LCI, Mm -hmm. the Local Composite Index, which is the state funding formula for public schools. You just mentioned TIFs. Can you explain yeah. that? Or yes. why is that relevant in the conversation? Yes. So TIFs are tax increment financing. Tax increment financing is a, a form of public funding for new development that, that purportedly relies on newly generated tax revenue to pay back the loan for the development. In theory, it's a good plan because it creates a new tax base by, by putting new development in your city and using the revenue from that to pay back the bonds. Okay, so the TIF that we'll talk about in just a second is just the financing plan. Yes. It's a financing structure. So in this case, it's a TIF district, which means it's using revenue not just from the new construction, but from a whole area, in this case, 80 blocks of downtown. Mm -hmm. So when our schools go to the state and they say we need funding for um, the, let's say, the 2022 school year, um, the state is going to look at the tax revenue that the city is bringing in and say, okay, you can afford to fund this much and we're going we're gonna to cover the rest. Mm. TIF districts really screw that formula up by producing tax revenue that actually doesn't go to the general fund. So when all that money goes into the Navy Hill Fund to pay back these bonds, the state actually still sees that money on the books and reduces our funding accordingly. Wow. Yeah, so this is a big problem. So the general fund is going to see a huge drop in income, and the state funding is also going to go down. So this is likely to defund schools at least in two different ways. And that goes against what the entire march was for last January 28th, (laughs) is more state funding, more dollars. It it really does, and so it, it... we one of the things we've seen is just tremendous stress put on schools in other parts of the country. Right. In um, Baltimore, the school system, the city of Baltimore, actually had to get a bailout from the state because they lost so much state funding from their schools and so much local funding from their schools that they were really in a crisis. Wow. We've seen a similar thing in the city of Chicago. TIFs have put a huge amount of pressure on schools. Mm-hmm. So we were we were worried about this, but we also saw this as a huge failure of public process to have the superintendent and the school board chair both stand by the mayor to make this um, to do this press conference without the school board vetting this deal without the school board approving the superintendent who works for the board to to take this action part of what happened was we created the impression that the school board and the schools endorsed it and felt good about it when actually no conversation had happened wow and what has happened since then is the school board has actually voted to try to protect their revenue stream from this development plan so once public process actually happens it was put forward by school board member Kenya Gibson. Once that actually went through, what we found was teachers, the teachers union, and the school board all agreed this was likely to be really bad for schools. Wow. And that happened about just a few weeks ago. Yes. Yeah. That resolution came through the school board, um, I think, two weeks ago. 
you mentioned Richmond for All. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what is Richmond for All. So Richmond for All started as about 10 people from um, different social movements who were um, opposed to this deal. We had people from public education. We had people from housing organizing and people from environmental fights because, of course, this project is led by a local fossil fuel CEO. They got together and rallied at city council demanding a, a public commission independent that would vet this deal. Um, that commission was uh, suggested by second district council representative Kim Gray and we brought a lot of people to council December of 2018 and we won that commission. Council which had previously indicated they weren't going to support this project actually voted eight to one. Mm. Um, only Michael Jones opposing the commission right. to actually put this commission forward. So that was a huge win. Mm -hmm. um, in the intervening year we've formed an organization. We've got about 60 dues paying members. It's been a really mobilizing fight and people across the city have come together to back it. It's great. You mentioned the commission and I want to put that in the parking lot too because we're going to visit that in just a second. Yeah. And I'm looking over here at Ben and Kristen mentioned TIFF and uh, I know you and I met probably about a year ago at this point and TIFF was a big part of the conversation but mostly as an urban planner, as someone that's been studying these types of projects, you're also from Chicago, you were just really eager to share some of your knowledge that really intersects this entire conversation for Richmond. So tell us a little bit about TIFFs and your work. Right, so um, TIFFs are, simply put, I think Kristen described them well, um, they're an economic development tool. Right. And kind of their origin, uh, when you look at, when you study legislative histories, um, they're enabled at the state level, um, in terms of the, the ability for localities to use tax increment financing. So, for example, when you examine, as scholars have done, the legislative history of tax increment financing in Illinois, what you see is um, TIF emerges sort of in the waning era of the urban renewal period. Mm. So at the time when... Urban renewal. That's often also called what? Negro removal by James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Alan. And I believe 1964. So during this period of time, there's a uh, federal retrenchment in investment um, for urban urban priorities, including uh, economic development in, in a whole host of areas beyond that. Um, and so what TIFF, when you when you study that legislative legislative history, what uh, you see is uh, developers and development consultants writing TIF legislation to ensure that there's a, a continued flow of public money to support redevelopment and economic development in a post uh, urban renewal, federally uh, supported urban renewal. Mm -hmm. So what does the TIF actually do? You know, TIF is a uh, mechanism of that recategorizes uh, public funds. Right. So as you know, we've already talked about here a little bit, Kristen described it well, um, TIF moves um, funds that uh, property tax revenues, although there can be others involved, from what, what would go to the general fund into a special fund that then is used directly for uh, economic development work, whether that would be um, physical construction of buildings or other types of activities. Mm -hmm. So how does TIF have to do, and this type of financing has to do with your work specifically, and why are you speaking out on these? Right. Well, I, I think that um, for a couple of reasons. One um, is that 
we do actually now have a lot of research on how TIFF works, how it works in practice, and what are the implications, and what then should the public and the public's representatives be considering uh, if they're if they're interested in in using a TIF. So, so what are the, some of the things that we should be aware of, and. I think as a starting point, um, sort of the second the second thing I would note is that it's important to break down what a TIFF is. So TIFFs, by by their nature, are complex instruments. They're opaque. Mm -hmm. They really um, kind of cut against a democratic process. So is that the reason why many people are saying, "I just don't like this TIFF. I don't like this TIFF." It's very it is very opaque. But a lot of people are either like, uh, "I'm questioning the TIFF," or "I just don't like it." What is that coming from? Yeah, so I mean, I think the reality is that we live in a very technical world. Yeah. Uh, whether that's you know technology and 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 in in all its forms, uh, environmental. You know, we're having a discussion about environmental technology, social media technology, um, and financial uh, technology and instruments. So this we live in a technical world, and I think the question is how do we have a democratic process in a technical world. We, mm. we need technical expertise, um, and that's also the, the reality of today. But the question is, how do we translate? How do we really uh, have a, a, a democratic process with integrity, acknowledging the, the technical world that we live in? So, you know, not to reject outright the idea of technology um, and, and TIFFs in particular, right, but to figure out and to, to think about how would you use a TIFF in a democratic right. way, right? And, and let me ask you also mentioned Eviction Lab RVA and that being a big part of your work as well right. with the housing and the eviction crisis that's happening right here in the city. So somebody that's looking at this TIFF and we're hearing a lot about affordable housing, how is that all coming together with the Navy Hill RVA project? And does that look like it's gonna be helpful for affordable housing in the city? Right, so I think what has been proposed in the redevelopment project is uh, specifically when we talk about what will be newly constructed within the project area, 280s, 80 units of uh, affordable housing, which are units that will be affordable to families making 80% of the regional area median income and 60% of the regional area median income. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? So the um, regional area median income for a family of four in the Richmond region, which is a really expansive geographic area that would run all the way from New Kent over to Amelia. And, you know, so it's not just Richmond, Richmond. Chesterfield and Rico, right, which is maybe more colloquially how we understand the region. Um, that in 2018, the um, regional area median income was about $83,400 for a family of four. Wow, 83,000 about, about was the that. average. The yeah, median. the median. Median, mm -hmm. right. So in the city of Richmond, um, that median is about $66,000. Wow. So. Already, we understand that the Richmond City median income is about 80% of the regional. Right. That is the relationship between, of the, of the economic standing, one measure of economic standing uh, between the region and the city. Right. And 
I, I, my guess my question's always been, why don't they just do the AMI of the city? Oh, Alan has his hand. So up. in her written response, Susan Eastridge said that it's not feasible for investors. Who's Susan Eastridge? Susan Eastridge. So to complete out the table, the developers are uh, Susan Eastridge and Michael Hallmark. They're they're from Concord Eastridge, who had a lawsuit for funneling money in between nonprofit and for-profit ones. Uh, and Michael, wait, 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 wait! Don't yeah. just skip over that. Okay, I didn't know how much time I had. No, I know. Just really quickly. I mean, just to slow that <laughs> down and, and say when, where that was, and when that was, and that way people can help and look that up. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so. I remember correctly. I have so much case law in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, was it in California? James Bay. Yeah, I think it was in California. James Bay's versus Concord versus the Eastman companies, right? Uh, and so essentially, James Bay had done some work for them building schools. Uh, and he was supposed to get a certain kickback from the amount that these schools were funded under this newly formed nonprofit. Mm-hmm. What the court found is that, okay, what the court found is that. Uh, uh, Susan Eastridge and her husband at the time, who has since passed away, um, actually set up different nonprofits mm-hmm. uh, during the same time, moved the work to that, and then fired uh, James. James sued and said, uh, "This work is still going on. It's the work I developed. I should be paid for this." And they said, and they tried to say, "Oh, well, that's a separate entity." They go to court. The court finds that they're actually after in, the, in doing depositions and some of the discovery. They find out that uh, Con- Con- the Eastridge companies, which also included Concord Eastridge, uh, actually had um, a lot of these what they called alter ego companies, where they would set up nonprofits and have for profits, and they would funnel money in between them to kind of evade taxes. And um, it's actually uh, a, a rare thing that happens in the court called piercing the corporate veil, where um, People abuse the use or pervert the use of the official wording of the of the corporate form mm. uh, in order to have an inequitable result. So they actually filed a uh, 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 ruled against uh, Susan Eastridge and said they had to pay, give James his money. Um, and that's now who is and our- that's who's doing that's 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 who's a developer for this. And that's who responded and said it's not feasible for investors to use the city. A citywide AMI versus Susan Eastridge. Okay, Kristen. So I, I think it's I think this is a really important point about this deal is when one of the the ways that we think about public policy and enrichment for all is we ask who benefits and who decides. Mm. And every construction, every component of this deal is constructed to benefit investors and has been decided by investors. So when we think whether we're thinking about um, school funding or housing. This is a deal that was designed to make money for people who already have money, but it's being marketed as if it's for the community. And that's a huge, huge concern for me, because if you look at what Navy Hill is, uh, what they're calling themselves Navy Hill and H Corp is putting out, is it's all about housing for people, schools for people, neighborhoods for people. But what this actually is at its core is a profit device. And anything that we get or see is going to be not secondary, it's like tertiary, it comes way, way way, way down the road mm-hmm. and actually isn't even guaranteed to, to be constructed. So what you guys noted um, a moment ago about how urban renewal was actually really a way of trying to force black communities out of city centers and into peripheries, part of what really worries me about this deal is we're seeing the same people, the same power structures, and the same financial interests implement policies that have the same outcomes, but they're marketing those policies as solutions to the previous problems. Wow. This is the same thing, mm-hmm. but it's being marketed as the solution. And that's absolutely no way it's going to solve displacement in the city of Richmond. It's just going to aggravate it. 
Right. And we know because of movements like Eviction Lab RVA that right here in Richmond, we are number two for the highest evictions in the nation. And so that right there is a need. That's something that we need addressed by these big proposals and, and ideas from our city. I want to talk a little bit about the commission that Kristen brought up earlier, um, because I've since about October 2nd, they've been doing a lot of the work of going through the proposal, running the numbers. And but Kristen, you mentioned that that the commission itself was a fight. It, Just, it was. It was very, very hard to get that commission established. I really um, commend Councilwoman Gray for fighting for it. Mm -hmm. It's really the only place in the city right now where we're having com real conversations, and they are very heated, mm -hmm. about what this deal is actually going to mean. The, um, the city has uh, argued that there's a lot of public meetings around this deal. But actually, if you look at those meetings, they're not publicly hosted, and they're not it's not public process that we're actually seeing. Right. They're all led by the developers. Um, even in the cases where city employees are running those meetings, they're using the materials created by the developers, including their PowerPoints and their talking points. Right. And so for us, the only place we've seen even the tiniest bit of pushback, even the tiniest bit of honest conversation about risk analysis mm -hmm. has been in this commission. Mm -hmm. And as the commission's work has continued, more and more developers, more and more investors, more and more bankers, more and more people who work for Dominion Energy show up at every section, uh, every session and disrupt the process. They're, they're pushing not to have people speak at these sessions. Wow. They're pushing to have the developers have the right of rebuttal for every single presentation that happens. We've seen incredibly, incredibly disturbing um, entitlement over public process mm -hmm. and just really horror on the part of the investment team that anyone would push back whatsoever on this thing that they want, that they believe that they're entitled to, mm -hmm. that is both city planning right. and city funds right. that are going to run it. So the commission meetings have been going on since the beginning of October. We just had one last week as well. And Ben, you presented there. And talk a little bit just really quickly about this experience. And how long are these meetings? Let's just kind of put that out there, these commission meetings. Oh, they're, oh, they're long. They're usually scheduled for about three hours. Okay. But because many of the presentations are subject to constant disruption, they can run four, five, six hours long. Okay. So last Wednesday, I um, was at uh, the commission meeting, and it began at 6.30, and I didn't get home till after midnight. Wow. Um, I'm not sure really when the gavel hit. Maybe it was around 11.30, mm -hmm, but that, mm -hmm. that definitely they do run, run long, and they're packed full of things happening. Right. I'm going to be really honest. I saw a lot of headlines after that meeting and a lot of conversation over social media about – uh, the role of Dr. Hakeem Lucas, who is also the president of Virginia Union University, who's sitting on this commission. Um, and who also wrote a ghost-written op-ed by the developers. Prior to being prior appointed. Prior to being appointed. So, and that was- It shows him over a certified accountant to sit on this uh, yeah, that was really um, a hotly contested move. Um, the three university presidents who published ghostwritten endorsements of this deal, which I think many people have argued quite rightly, steps out of their role as university right. presidents. Right. Um, Dr. Lucas was one of those members. Um, they had passed those off as written by themselves. They were actually written by a 
um, from a marketing firm that was hired by the developers. So that was quite controversial. And then, um, again, it was Councilman Mike Jones and Councilwoman Ellen Robertson who really, really, really demanded that Dr. Lucas serve on this commission despite some glaring conflicts of interest and despite the loss of an accountant who would have been really an asset to understanding the financial structure of this deal. So there was not an accountant on the official commission. There, there are people in the deal uh, on the commission who I think have some real valuable expertise in these areas. But the, the trade that was made from that individual for Dr. Lucas, I think, showed the power structures that are at play right. and the fact that two council representatives pushed to have somebody with an, a, an overt conflict of interest put on this commission shows how much pressure has been on council to endorse this deal right. and how willing council members have been to go along with this deal. Right. And in fact, we have seen Dr. Lucas really take a lead in demanding that people not speak before the commission. He pushed back very, very hard on um, Dr. Richard Marr, who spoke to the the um, prior commission's meeting, I think this has been about three weeks ago now, um, who presented some risk analysis around the deal. And um, Dr. Lucas not only said that that presentation should not be had, but that actually no faculty members with any relevant expertise should be permitted to speak because, in his words, university faculty members are too theoretical and, and too invested in kind of professing and not actually looking at the, the concrete realities of some of these projects. I wonder how his professors over at Virginia Union feel about that. <laughs> I, Just stay I, in your classroom, I guess. I would be very concerned if I, I heard my own university president speak this way about the role of faculty in public life. Um, we're very lucky in Richmond to have public universities present, but we also really, we want those universities to play a much more community engaged and pro-community role. VCU, where I work, has, has taken a lot of uh, rightful criticism for kind of railroading the communities. Um, endorsing this project, I think, is an example of that. And this kind of engagement where faculty work with communities, participate in public commissions, and do um, a good faith effort to use their skills to find what's going to be best outcomes from communities right. is what we should want to see. Yes. So it was very concerning to me to see a university president essentially denounce the role of faculty in public life in this way. Well, thank you, Dr. Teresa, and thank you, Dr. Reed, for you all coming out and doing this work very publicly. Um, I'm looking over at Alan because you have been to many of these commission meetings and you've been speaking at many of these commission meetings as well. What are some important facts or events that have come from the meetings that you've seen that you would like the public to hear or know about? Well, number one, I think this is the one place where professionals that are not on the payroll, except for maybe two of them, um, are actually challenging the assumptions and actually doing the um, uh, such things as a fiscal impact analysis, meaning how will this affect future budgets? Uh, so you're saying this commission is really doing that work, but you mentioned two people. I, we've heard Dr. Lucas. Who is the other person that you were saying? So this is something uh, that I raised in my public comments uh, maybe last month. Uh, very concerned about Michael Shule. So Michael Shule is on the is on the independent commission. He has done some work that would. Uh, probably have a level of expertise that would be helpful, but the problem is that uh, the pr the group that's commissioned to do the affordable housing uh, 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 portion of this project is Better Housing Coalition, mm -hmm. and he is the immediate past chair uh, there, and his face is still on the website, and they are set to receive millions of dollars to work out this project. He also works for McGuire Woods, who is the legal um, uh, ad ad advisor, as as pointed out in the uh, Golden documents, and there was a and what really raised my concern more is that Dr. Walker had raised a question about what are what's the diversity of the people at the table currently. 
Dr. Walker is who? Dr. Corey Walker is also on the um, Independent Commission. Great. Uh, and he was saying, what what is the, um, how have they been about diversity currently? Mm. To which Mr. Shul responded, well, I've been in the rooms with the lawyers and they, there is, uh, speaking about Ed McGuire Woods and saying that uh, there is at least two of the lawyers are black. Now, one, that's super ignorant. And two, but two, if you are in the rooms with the lawyers brokering this deal, how can you be independent of this? So I wrote to the commission. I said, look, sure, he, I'm sure he has some expertise that's helpful. But in the moments of disclosure, which they have in front of every in, in the beginning of every meeting, you're supposed to dis- disclose your uh, conflicts of interest. And I said, could you just have him respond during that time? And each of those ones, he has refused to do so. And him, along with Dr. Lucas, have been um, one of the um, voices that um, have sought to discredit pretty much any intellectual person that is not on the payroll for this project. So I just want to point out um, for our listeners at home that if you, like me, find Alan Charles to be a very compelling voice about some of the concerns that he's raising, his letters to the commission are available publicly on the the commission's website, NavyHillCommission.org. Any um, public feedback that is being sent into this commission is available there, and I strongly recommend that you browse some of those documents and also read Alan Charles' strong words, which I find very compelling. So you mentioned Better Housing Coalition and how they stand to benefit and and work with them in this project. Um, And I think that for a lot of Richmond community, better housing community has a good reputation. Right. So what are your thoughts on that? Right. So again, my my point is not to throw Better Housing Coalition under the bus. Just the point is that if they are, so it's supposed to be, there's supposed to be 480 units of affordable housing, even though um, that still is under of the 15% in a resolution that's supposed to, before city council can vote on something. So again, are they meeting public need if they're coming under below a resolution the city has determined? But Better Housing Coalition is supposed to be um, some additional affordable housing units. I think 80 of them dropped to maybe 40%, so that's the closest they get to uh, low-income housing. But they're supposed, any district court is supposed to raise money. They say they have about $10 million. And that $10 million, if this project is approved, would go to Better Housing Coalition to actually build these, these homes. So if you're the if you're the immediate past chair of an organization that stands to gain ten million dollars from this project, you need to at least disclose that. Right, right. And sitting on the independent commission. Right, because that doesn't sound independent to me. Right, right. And honestly, from what it's hearing, Shul and Lucas, when they speak, they don't sound independent. And just to remind our listeners, I don't know if any of you know off the top of your head, 40% of AMI is the absolute lowest threshold. But what is that in terms of monthly rent? It's over $1,000, right? Um, no. I, uh, so 40, 40%. Um, so I, I think that when we talk about the housing component of the project, there's actually um, at least two or maybe three uh, pieces to that. Right. Um, so there are 280 units that will be constructed as part of the actual redevelopment project of the Coliseum and other office and retail and residential uh, components. And there's other uh, units that have been pledged, Mm -hmm. including this additional 200 units um, that the philanthropic uh, 
contribution of $10 million is going to go toward to help construct with which is what we're talking about with uh, the Better Housing Coalition. Now, those additional 200 units, there is um, no site identified. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a critical piece to any any developer of housing, affordable <laughs> or otherwise, will, will tell you um, that a pledge of units to be built somewhere without a clear site control mm -hmm. is 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 really not a, a very strong commitment in any sense of it. Now, I think where we're talking about the 40% of AMI, which uh, units, which is identified in in this sort of secondary set of units with, with Better Housing Coalition, that does begin to reach to the levels of affordability that would actually meet uh, the need of, of Richmonders. Right. However, um, again, the, the commitment is weak because of the identification of sites has not been made, and um, the number of units actually that would be built at the 40% is is fairly small. Are TIFs made for affordable housing? Is this what they're used for to help the city meet those needs? Well, again, I think that's a, that's a really important point, which is back to what TIFs are. They're a tool. Right. And all tools um, have some level of versatility, but they also have... Um, biases in terms of things that they're good for and, and things that they're not or weaknesses and strengths, right? So when we talk about TIF, what can TIF be used for? TIF could absolutely be used for um, extending what we call depth of affordability, right? Which is sort of like how deeply can you get down to the incomes um, that that where the need is, is the greatest. So TIFs could be used in that way. That's not uh, what's been proposed here. Gotcha, gotcha. But there are people who say TIFs work. I mean, um, I think Dr. Lucas was very adamant about that at the commission meeting. So why do you have qualms about that here for all of you? What are some of the problems about it? Right. So again, I think that it is important to note the uh, range of different types of projects and activities that TIF has funded in the past. I mean, in Chicago, that is has been a prolific user of TIF. At one point, as much as a, um, a third of land value um, or something approaching a third of land value was actually inside a TIF district in Chicago, that TIF funds had been used from everything to pay administrative costs of administering the TIF, so like staff time, to um, school construction. So, so TIFs can be used for a wide range of things, and that's an important point to make. However, I mean, if we're trying to vet and trying to understand um, what has been proposed, then what has been proposed is really none of those things in terms of meeting the need of, of affordable housing. Right. Yeah, and I, I think I would, to that point, I would say, you know, there, there are a huge range of things that TIFs can do and have done, even in Richmond. You know, Short Pump was a, a tax finance district. Um, but... These things don't, these policies don't exist independent of the power dynamics that are putting them forward. And what we're seeing with this particular deal is it is entirely constructed by people who have disproportionate power and wealth in our city, and it's designed to meet their needs. So one of the things that many people ask when they approach Richmond for All is, well, could we have a community benefits agreement? What could sweeten this deal for you? Like, maybe we'll just toss in 20 more affordable housing units. But the reality is the entirety of how this deal is constructed is oppositional to the needs of this city. Mm. What we would need if we wanted to meet the, the actual economic needs of our city is to 
have good faith public process and a good faith RFP process to get a lot of different possibilities and see what's actually going to work from the ground up, not from the statewide, very, very top down. Right. Right. So I think that um, something that, Alan, you you brought up earlier about you know, when these additional benefits are added, one response has been, well, that would make the project unfinanceable, infeasible. What that means is that the rate of return dipped below some arbitrary level. It went from (laughs) 20% to 18%, from 15% to 14%, something that we don't actually know because that part of, um, of the structure of the financing of the investment is not public information. But it's very different thing to say that will make the project infeasible, unfinanceable. That is an argument about profitability, which mm. which um, goes to your point, Kristen. Um, and a really important point came up in the discussion on the commission last Wednesday night when someone uh, indicated uh, on the commission, well, of course, you know, bondholders, investors will be paid first because they have the most at risk. There is a difference very important difference between putting capital at risk and putting the public at risk, between putting capital at risk and people's lives at risk. Um, so it is, of course, um, uh, standard, you know, sort of the, the conventional wisdom or how finance operates, mm-hmm. you know, risk, higher risk, higher return. Right. But there's a difference between capital at risk and people at risk. Thank you for bringing that point up. Ben, because something that Art Burton brings up to the table is that a commissioner shared that in the proposal, Tom Frail and the Navy Hill District will recoil their pre-development expenses first in the tune of $5 million as soon as this proposal is signed. So as soon as this gets signed, who is the immediate beneficiary? We have to wrap up, but I want to give you all a chance to just share with the public, number one, any final thoughts that they should know, but number two, how does this show up in November 2020 with our elections that are coming up with our city council? We've already mentioned Mike Jones, Ellen Robinson, who have been champions with this project, forcing it down our throats. We are looking at how a school board is responding. We're, I mean, we haven't even talked about policing and criminalizing the people that would be living um, around this chunk, 80 block uh, radius. So. If you all would just share your final thoughts. Uh, sure, I'll state what I said in my um, public comments uh, last Wednesday, that the city's not in an arena crisis, it's in a low-income housing crisis. We have, we're in a crisis for education. There are several things that threaten education. That's, that is why the school board voted the way that they did when uh, Dr. Teresa and I presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if this is not, if this project does not meet the needs of the city, mm-hmm. which they claim to be the purpose of their 501c3, mm-hmm. then this is not the right project. And they can find some more of their friends to come up with the rest and mm-hmm. do it in the free market of America. But if this is a public-private partnership and you're not being a great partner to our needs, it's not the best deal. Do you think that this is something that the voters should keep in mind in November 2020? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I, I would say there this this deal is going to define the elections in 2020. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, like a lot of people, I didn't expect to spend the last year of my life fighting this project. Right. Um, I shouldn't have to do that, actually. Like, we shouldn't have to give up our every other Saturday, all of our 
time with our families and things like that to go make sure that our elected officials don't gut our school funding and gut our road funding and gut our public health funding or whatever it is that we're going to lose because of this deal. So if there's one thing I know, it's that I've actually given up the next year of my life also because I'm going to go to bat for every single elected official who came out against this deal. And I'm going to get more people in office with every second I have to canvas and fundraise and phone call so that we don't have to keep doing this in the future. I was invited uh, last Wednesday to present to the commission on the topic of the affordable housing component. And so from you know my expertise and um, my experience as a practicing planner in city government, um, there is, as Alan was pointing out, a real um, housing crisis and that it that includes evictions and that includes affordable housing and it's extremely racialized. Mm-hmm. Of course, we know that the overlap between poverty and race is nearly totally eclipsing each other. <laughs> um, and so what it means to be poor in in the city of Richmond is is a racialized, uh, thoroughly racialized experience, which which means that in the context of this development, Right. The critical question that the, for the public, for the commission, for the city council is, does it meet the needs as we see them? And no, pro- the needs are so un- unmeetable by any one project that it's you can't expect any project, this one or another one, to fill that hole, to, to meet those needs. I think the question is, knowing what we know about TIFFs and large scale redevelopments and, and what is being proposed in this project, can we weigh the question about the likely impacts from uh, displacement effects from rising property values and rising rents um, outside of the TIF district and how this project doesn't meet the needs and how it um, and how uh, and, and, and how it's formed um, in terms of uh, the displacement pressure that uh, all the scholarship likely tells us will follow and how we do not have the anti-displacement tools in place to deal with that. Now, the question is, you know, my role is to is to raise the question, is to help frame and to provide the research and evidence um, that will that will help us pose the right questions, right? And they're always value questions. And so the value question here is knowing what we know about the likely um, impacts from displacement and so forth, you know, can't, should we do should we do the deal? Right. Right. That's the question. And the commission will finish up their work before Christmas. And that's something that we can continue to follow. NavyHillCommission.org. Really quickly, how can people follow you all or support your work if you want to do the shout out? Uh, sure. You can uh, follow me at A Difference in Thought and also check out my podcast, A Difference in Thought. And there are two episodes. You can follow Richmond for All on any social media platform at Richmond for All. Um, and I'm often talking about this deal on Twitter. I'm Turnery underscore Logic. I'm on Twitter as BF Teresa, and um, also the RVA Eviction Lab has a Twitter presence. Um, and if you Google the RVA Eviction Lab, that will link to our studies on, on eviction and housing. Great. All right, Kat, I think that's all for today. Thank you all so much for coming. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for doing this work. This was exhausting just hearing all of this. I can't imagine doing this work. Oh, wait, I can. Uh, <laughs> So um, we'll see you all out there. Yeah, thanks for being here, y'all. Thank you. After hearing those three voices, there are still so many questions that 
Richmonders have about the fate of this Navy Hill RVA project and proposal. The city council has hired their own consultant to review the proposed Coliseum Navy Hill project. We knew that this consultant was coming when the commission was decided on by city council. It was another part and another way to review this project. And most of our minds, when this first came up last December 2018, we thought that the process would be happening simultaneously with the commission that we've been seeing happen since October. Now it appears that they have hired the consulting firm C.H. Johnson, and they will have an additional 90 days. So many folks thought that we would have a decision about this Navy Hill project in January, and now it looks like it'll probably be March. Right, because the commission's recommendations are due December 23rd. So it's going to be in the middle of budget season Wow! when the decision comes out. Wow. And so who knows what will get lost in the weeds? Mm. I wonder how much will get lost in the weeds of the commission. Will that even ever come out? So much has happened with these commission meetings. And at the time of this recording, there are two commission meetings remaining. But when you're hearing this, there will be one left. It's going to be on Saturday, December 14th at the main library on Franklin Street. So those of you who are interested in attending have that option. Also, and this is something that has been stressed by Pierce Homer and John Gerner, the commission chairs and vice chairs, is that you can submit online. So if you don't feel like sitting through a six-hour meeting or you don't have time or whatever, you can send an email All of that information can be found on NavyHillCommission.org. Well, we will be watching. Hopefully you stay tuned and we'll catch you all next week. I'm from the autumn.